All right. Well, good morning, church. Morning to one or two of you at least. The rest of you, not good morning. I take it back. Uh, I'm thankful to see you. I also love that uh, in the encouragement of a meet and greet, Brad used the, the phrase old faces, um, which was, was kind of, he meant familiar faces. If anybody took that personally, I don't know, maybe, maybe I was the only one who caught that. Um, but it actually fits, fits well with the message that we're going to get into uh, today. If we haven't met, my name is Paul. I serve as the teaching pastor here. If you're a guest this morning, so thankful uh, that you've chosen to join us uh, today. Very, very grateful uh, that you're here. Uh, today we are in the eighth and final week of a series that we've been in for eight weeks and uh, in this series, we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which is why the title of this series is Under the Sun, okay? And that's a, a phrase uh, that the preacher, and I know we're all familiar with this eight times over, uh, but that's a, a phrase the preacher uses again and again as he processes and tries to find meaning, significance, purpose. Uh, but the problem with, with the preacher, who we know to be King Solomon, is that he's looking for meaning, significance, and purpose under the sun. That is in the earth, in the world, not over the sun. He's not, he's not looking over the sun to find meaning, and that's a real problem, and, and he sees that over and over again. Now, throughout this series, what we saw really in the first several weeks as we looked through chapters one through six uh, was the preacher trying to explain to us and really plead to us in many ways, hey, um, if you get really, really wealthy, if you're really, really powerful, if you live for a long time, if you're incredibly intelligent and wise, uh, here's the thing, I have been all of those things, essentially says the preacher, and I'm summarizing and paraphrasing here, and, and the unfortunate reality is that the end comes and I, I realized it was all vanity, it was all meaningless, it was all nothing. And so it's a really, really depressing sort of point he gets to. You can, you can gain the whole world, but you'll never find satisfaction for your soul. And so from that, we, we've really gotten this big idea of this entire series, and, and that, got, that is that God offers us a full life in an empty world. Right? God offers us a full life in an empty world, and hopefully we've seen that played out throughout the course and the life of this series. Now, what we saw in chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 12, was the preacher ask a second driving question, and that is, what is good for man uh, in this life? He's already pursued and answered to the fullest, what does man gain? Vanity. Now he asks this question, what is good in this life that we've been given? And from there, he's gone into some practical wisdom. He said, look, whatever you're doing, do it with all your might. He talks through that. Last week, we got some really practical, though I think difficult, counsel as he gave us this command to obey the command of the king. And we had to wrestle through what that means in our current political context as we wrestle through obeying God and obeying man and how we are to respect our leaders. And we worked through that last week. Now, in this final week of the series, the preacher is really summing things up, and he's really addressing, in many ways, young people, um, which is why I thought it was funny that Brad used the word old faces this morning. But anyway, um, so he, he's going to address young people, but as we get there, I, I think sometimes we have a little bit too narrow definition of young, and I think we'll get there uh, when we get there. And so today, we're going to be in chapters 11 and 12. Uh, the reason for that is, is if you just start in chapter 12, which was my original intent this morning, you really miss the, the context and the idea that he's talking about. And, and I think it's just a good reminder to say our Bibles, chapters and verses were added later. 
Okay, and so sometimes what happens if we, we break a chapter in there, we can miss the, the concept and the thought that the preacher was going toward. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into the text, all right? Father, um, so grateful to have the, the opportunity to worship together this morning. Um, God, as we come to a close of this Ecclesiastes series, and I think it's been really a challenging but a good one, God, would you help us see and understand most of all Above all, beyond all, Jesus, that our significance, our purpose, our meaning ultimately comes from you. And so would you root that in our hearts this morning as we close this series, that our identity is based upon you, Jesus, and you alone. Open your word to us. Help me communicate and teach clearly. Get me out of the way. Jesus, your glory above and beyond all. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin in uh, chapter 11. I said we won't go into too much detail and too much here in chapter 11 because the real meat of the, the topic is in chapter 12, but I do, again, want to give us the context. Now, verse 1, chapter 11, he says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. And so here we get some practical wisdom. Sounds a little bit confusing at first, but essentially what he's saying is diversify. Okay, If you've got a harvest of great crops and then you put 100% of that crop harvest on a single ship and that ship sinks, well, then you're in trouble. Okay, So he's saying, hey, diversify how you're sending things out. Be intelligent in how you're managing your resources, managing your money. And we sort of get this idea that he's talking to people who are really in the throes of life trying to figure out, figure out how to be wise stewards, maybe at the beginning or the onset of their life. Verse 3, he says, If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls on the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will be. Excuse me, there it will lie. I mean, that's a heck of a verse there. I'm not sure what to do with that. Anyway, he goes on, verse 4, he says, He who observes the wind will not sow... And he who regards the clouds will not reap. And so I think when we consider that verse, suddenly verses uh, about the tree falling, it begins to make more sense. You see, sometimes people, what they do is they'll, they'll say, I'm not sure what to do. They read the clouds and like, what if a tree falls there? That would be, and so what happens is there's a paralysis of analysis in a sense. So he's saying, look, if you observe the wind and don't sow, you're not gonna reap anything. Right? If you don't just say, okay, I'm just going to act here wisely with, with prudence, and there's wisdom in, in verses 1 and 2, well, then you're never really going to have a harvest. And he says, don't overthink it here. Just essentially do something. So again, talking to these people sort of in the throes of life. Now in, in verse 9, we're going to jump to verse 9, we get to this direct application toward young people. He says, rejoice, O young man, in verse 9, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. So that's his, his counsel. And, you know, frankly, my, my sirens go off a little bit theologically because when I, when I hear essentially what he's saying here is, hey, follow your heart, what triggers in my mind is what we talked about back in week one. Remember these two concepts we brought up? Weeks one and two, and I think I mentioned them in, in week three as well, existentialism and hedonism. Remember, existentialism was this idea that humans have the authority to determine ultimate meaning in life. 
Hedonism is this concept that we pursue pleasure above and beyond all. And so what happens is when you combine existentialism with hedonism, you get today's worldview, which says, follow your heart, or the way we like to say it is, you do you, whatever that means to you. And so here when he's saying, hey, follow your heart, all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, that can't be right. It says, whatever your eye thinks is good, go for it. Again, we have to sort of check and, and like, wait a minute, is that right? Because this is the word of God. And in verse 13 of chapter 12, the author actually says these words have been given by God. They're trustworthy and true. And so what then do we do with that? And we remember, too, what Solomon said back in chapter 2, verse 17, as he explained to us all of the ways he pursued pleasure, all the ways he pursued possessions. What did he say? I hated my life. Painful verse. Verse 17, chapter 2. And then when I consider what the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 17, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So what really is the preacher saying here? Again, if the word of God is true and trustworthy as it is, and this is his encouragement, what is the balance? Well, thankfully, I believe we get to, get, we, we get to the balance in the second half of verse 9. He says this, But know that for all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. It's almost like saying, you want to go ahead and do that? Go ahead. Oh, just remember, judgment's coming. It's like, wait a minute, so do I follow my heart? I'm confused here. Saying, look, judgment is coming. We are accountable for the things that we do. One day, all of our lives will come to an end, and we have to face God and give an account. And he's saying, look, you can follow your heart, follow what your eye deems as pleasurable, but just remember, one day it's coming to an end. And so with that, we're like, well, I don't really know what to do. At least, that's me. Right? What, where do we go from here? Are we supposed to follow our heart? Are we supposed to do this? Are we supposed to be paralyzed by the future judgment coming? Well, finally then, as this train of thought now flows into chapter 12, this is where the preacher, I think, begins to resolve things. He says this, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So essentially, what he's saying here is, look, you want to figure out life? You want to follow your heart? You want to to look to see what's good? He says, this is the key. And this is the most above-the-sun statement I think we've gotten from the the under-the-sun preacher. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. And essentially what he's saying here is, remember God before you can't. Remember God while you still can. And I think we see that as we then read verses 3 through 8, which are incredibly depressing. Okay? So let's go ahead. I'm excited about it. I don't know if you guys are. Verses 3 through 8, they said this. It says, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors in the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. 
An almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, the desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. I know it's getting good here, six through eight, we're almost there. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. One final time, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity, and what in the world did any of that mean? Right? So here, here's essentially what's happening. Diversify your investments. Be wise. Jump into action. Follow your heart. Oh, wait, remember there's judgment. Here's the conclusion. Remember God while you still can because this is actually a really vivid description of the final stage of life. See, when I was um, first getting into ministry, I had to supplement my income. And so I worked at an assisted living facility as a nurse's aide, uh, which when I think back, I think of, man, the people who do that are just incredible because I don't know how I made it. I was not that incredible person, right? I, I get grossed out about anything. And there I was as a nurse's aide, like showers and toilets and all of the things, right? All of the things that I think back and I'm like, what happened? Anyway, so one of the things I really actually loved about that job was I would go in and I'd get to know these people and I, was, I did the night shift. And so I would see these people just in there. <laughs> Just most, just most lowly state, but oftentimes on their dresser, they'd have pictures of their life. And I remember this one guy in particular, there was a picture of him standing on an aircraft carrier in World War II. Strong, strapping, handsome dude. Behind him, a fleet of Nazi-killing airplanes. He was a pilot. I see this picture And then I look at this man. It's but a shadow of that man. Text says, the keepers of the house tremble. This man would look at me and his hands would shake. He said, his strong men are bent. I can hardly stand. And I remember to get him out of his bed, I would have to get a crane, essentially, and strap it around him hoist him up. It says the grinders cease because they're few. He's talking about teeth. They're gone. Windows are dimmed. This man was actually blind, and so every day I would come in, and he'd say, who is it? He'd say, it's Paul, remember? What? To get down real close. So the sound of grinding is low. He couldn't hear. The almond tree blossoms, white hair if there's any left. It says the sound of the bird when rises. I don't know what happens, but it seems like old, when, when folks are really, really old, they just can't sleep, and it's almost like torture. I don't know, some of us feel like we're at different stages of this. And then he gives this final picture. He talks about this silver cord. And on the end of this silver cord is a bowl. And this bowl is really representative of our life. And he's basically saying, look, that silver cord, it, it sort of glints just barely in the sun. And we never know when that silver cord is going to snap and the bowl is going to come crashing down and life is over. Again, it's pretty depressing. What's the point? The point is to say, 
Remember God while you still can. Remember God while you still have the faculties to do so. Remember God before it's over and you don't really understand what happened because time and time and time again when I would talk to these people and meet with them and this was such a good job just for my spiritual growth, they would say, it happens like that. I remember in 1965 when I was doing this and it felt like yesterday. And now it's over and I can't even stand up on my own or chew my own food. And we'd like to sort of pretend that doesn't happen But unless something else happens first, it's all of us, especially young people. As we typically define young, we think we're invincible. We think we're going to be this way forever. And he's saying, no, 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 no. It's going to happen to you before you realize it. Remember, therefore, your creator in the days of your youth. That's his counsel. Again, as we've gone through these 12 chapters of endless seeming thought, This is his grand conclusion. Now, this is really important because I think we could think, well, remember your creator? That sounds a little bit simplistic. But I think there's far more to to remembering than a a mental acknowledgement of the existence of God. For example, to help us sort of think through this, a lot of the times, one of my greatest concerns for evangelism and the American church is we like to ask this question. Just as an example of how to understand the word remembering. What we do in the American church is we say, do you believe in Jesus? And somebody says, yes. We're like, great, you're saved. Right? Here's the thing. Demons believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus existed. Here's what's also crazy. The Pharisees, the very people who actually put Jesus on the cross and had him crucified, they believed in the miracles of Jesus because they saw them. Here's something else that's really crazy. The Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb of Jesus, they believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because they were guarding him, and then he wasn't there. Because angels, you know, knocked him out or something. Right? They had to make this cover-up story. So demons believe in Jesus. The Pharisees believe in Jesus. The Roman soldiers believe in Jesus. And we ask this question, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. Great. It's not enough to believe that Jesus existed. Okay? When we ask the question, do you believe in Jesus, the question is implying and asking at a deeper level, do you understand that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior? Do you understand that you have something called sin in you that is destroying your soul and has separated you from God? Yes? Great. Do you believe that you need saved from the penalty of that sin? Yes? Great. How do you do that? Well, the only way you can be saved from the penalty of that sin is if you believe, do you believe in Jesus, that Jesus lived perfectly, sinlessly, flawlessly in your place and could therefore be be something we call the perfect, blemishless lamb of God to be a sacrificial payment for our sins, my sins, your sins. So do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe Jesus took the wrath of God the Father against my sin. And not only do I believe that, I also believe Jesus gave me his righteousness. I believe that God the Father, through faith, my faith, my belief in Jesus, sees me as holy. That I'm no longer at enmity or separation with God. But my belief in Jesus unites me with God. You see how critically important those distinctions are? 
We need to, I think, fight against easy believism in the American church because we might be believing people right on in to hell. Now, that was just an illustrative point. So what's he say when he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth? It's a similar concept. It's not a mental ascent to remember who God is. See, when the original author wrote this out, this concept of remembering was really a subjecting of oneself to the lordship of God. A remembering of, oh wait, I am not my own. I'm not in control. I'm not in authority. I remember God, that you are in authority. And so remembering, when we apply remembering to God, what we get is an active submission of all of our self to God in all things. Right? To remember God in the days of your youth is to say, I actively submit myself, all things, to God every single day. That's what this is really meaning. That's what this is actually talking about. Now, where do we go? Where do we go from there? I think there's a couple of things that we have to keep in mind. How do we actually do this? I always think it's so helpful to ask this question, okay, well, how does this change my day today? Like when we come in and we study the scriptures that are living and active as God promises they are, they should change our hearts. They should change the way we, we go home. They should change the way we go to work tomorrow, the way we parent, the way we engage with our spouse, whatever. It should change us. So how do we remember our creator in the days of our youth? And again, I think we can use that word youth a little bit broadly. Because if you're still alive, you've still got a chance. It's basically the point that's being said here. Okay? Number one, I think this. We have to eliminate the sacred-secular divide. Okay, if you're not familiar with that concept, that's okay. I want to explain it to you. A lot of the times when we, when we go about our life, we think of things either as sacred, things of God, or we think of things as secular, everything else. And what we place in the sacred bucket, I've, apparently this stage is more sacred than that stage over there, what we place in this bucket is Sunday morning, church stuff, maybe life group if you're engaged in that. All right, that's our sacred bucket. And there's a couple things in there. Now the secular bucket, which is, this is a terrible part of the stage over here, I don't know what it says about y'all on this side, but the secular, my wife's here, so I'm just kidding. Anyway, um, the secular bucket, what we place in there is our work, we place our finances in there, uh, we, we place uh, kids in there sometimes. You know, we place everything that isn't sacred over in the secular bucket. Here's what remembering, remembering our creator in the days of our youth looks like. It looks like eliminating the buckets and saying everything is sacred. Every single thing is sacred. Your work, your kids, your marriage, your finances, your hobbies, all of it. Even my hobbies? Yes, all of it is sacred. Everything. In the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s into the 70s, there was a guy named Francis Schaeffer. And he had this concept. He's like, I want to help people understand that there should be no distinction in how we live out our faith between the secular and the sacred. And so what he did was he created this school in the Swiss Alps, which just makes it more cool, um, pun intended. But so in, the Swiss, I'm sorry. so in the Swiss Alps, he creates this school and he invites all of these people in to say, hey, we're going to explore this concept of what it looks like to view your entire life through a sacred lens. And so what they would do is he would literally train people this because naturally, what do we do? We go existentialism and we go hedonism. He's like, no, we're going we're to combat all that. We're going to say, no, 
how do you, for example, listen to pop music from a secular view? And their classes, which just sounds amazing to me, they would listen to, to popular music of the day, the Beatles, I don't know, or whatever, and they would say, okay, wait a minute, how does our faith inform the way we think about this music, the way we talk about this music, and other people? It's not that we need to seclude and be hermits. Jesus didn't go build a castle somewhere and say, everybody who's with me, we're going to seclude ourselves. No, Jesus went out into the world to engage with the world, but as we engage with the world, we have to have a sacred view of everything we're doing in it. There's literally a school that taught people how to do that, and I think that would be really cool. Right? So my question, do you operate in a sacred or a secular mindset? Do you think, oh, I've got the things of God and I've got everything else? I think we need to eliminate that. That's step one as we work to remember our creator in the days of our youth. I think step two is this. We need to take on a stewardship mindset, not an ownership mindset. A stewardship mindset is one that understands I'm not in control. An ownership mindset looks at our life and says, what do I want to do? How much money do I want to make? When can I get the right spouse? What are my kids going to do? When do I get to whatever, fill in the blank, an ownership mindset says, this life is about me, I'm in control of it. And when I say it that plainly, we recoil it. We're like, I would never say that. The question is, you might not say it, but do we live it? You know? When we think again about, just for example, I think the easiest way we understand this is often in the realm of finances. Okay? We say, well, yeah, I, I, maybe I give a percentage, but, in, but in a stewardship mindset regarding our finances doesn't just say 10% is God's. It says actually everything we have is God's because everything is a gift from God. Maddie and I, this week, we were listening to a podcast, uh, this guy named Greg Balmer. Nobody probably knows who he is. I didn't know who he was, but his story is really fascinating. He's a brilliant dude. He's a, some, uh, he works at a very intelligent company. I don't know. Clearly, I paid attention to those details. But he found himself uh, at Harvard School of Business. And what they teach you at Harvard School of Business is how to make a lot of money, primarily. And so in this large Harvard School of Business, he found these like six other guys who were also Christians. He was a Christian. And so they found themselves in this Bible study together, and they started reading about finances and what the Bible said about money. And I love his genuine heart in this. He's like, look, here's the thing. We all proclaim to be Christians. However... What we were trying to, to come to the conclusion of is, how little can I give and still call myself a Christian? That was his goal. I mean, what a terrible goal, but I love that he said it, you know? Sometimes you've got to be honest with how sinful we are. So, so that was our goal. So we looked at every single passage in Scripture that talked about money. We came to the end of this study, and we were like, well, crap. That's not going to work, because what we see in the New Testament, for example, is people just being like, I, it's not 10%, it's 100%. And so this totally changed his way of thinking. And so now, he told this story, every year, the new year, he and his wife sit down together, and they make this budget, and, and they ask God this question. They say, God, how do you want to spend your money this year? What a different way of thinking. God, what do you want to do with your, your finances this year? That's a stewardship mindset, not an ownership mindset. And now, very, again, that's just one example. So how does this work out in our, our you know, everyday life, not only with our finances, but everything else as well. Well, very clearly, the, the preacher is addressing, he says, 
in the days of your youth. And so as we strictly define it, I specifically want to speak to the young people in the room right now. Young people in the room, your life is not yours. Your life belongs to God. God knit you together. God knows you. He knows every single hair on your head, whether you're a little baby or you're 22. Right? He, he knows you. He has plans for you, purposes for you. And the sooner you can realize that you're actually on God's team through faith in Jesus and that God wants to use you for purposes and plans that are far bigger than you can imagine, the better life is going to be. I'm not saying life's going to be easy. Frankly, it's probably going to be a little bit more difficult. And don't let that scare you. It's actually going to be a whole lot better because it's going to be a whole lot more meaningful. I think sometimes young people in particular, we maybe you think, and I remember thinking this early on, um, not necessarily real young, but when I first became a believer, we have this concept of maybe there's a JV Holy Spirit. You know, like it's just sort of like an under thing, Holy Spirit. Like not really, but no, here's the thing. The same Holy Spirit that all of us have through faith in Christ, the same spirit that Jesus sent is alive and active in you and everybody else. And what that means is that as you go into your school, as you go into your sports, as you do everything, you carry through faith in Jesus, God with you into that place. Throughout history, some of the greatest movements of God have been started by young people who said, God, here I am, send me, use me however you would like. And I think that starts right where you are and right where you live. For some of you, God might call you to go to a different country across the ocean and be a missionary. Praise God, I'm excited to stand right here with the rest of the church and pray for you and send you off. But for so many of you, you can be a missionary on your team and in your classroom and in your home. And you got to see that vision for your life. Get plugged in, get engaged, ask God, use me how you will. I'm available, I'm ready. Be a steward, not an owner of your life. Now, maybe the rest of us are saying, well, I'm not young, so this doesn't really apply to me. Again, I think we can be a little bit more broad in our usage of young. If you don't fit all of the descriptors here, which is essentially describing somebody who's dead or next to it, you're still young, okay? You still got an opportunity. It's like, great, okay, right? You still got a lot of life. But here's the thing. I think a lot of times we get into our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever it may be, and it's like, you know, I paid my dues. You know, I, man, I've been through it. I've done a lot of stuff. I, not all of us. But I think that's an, maybe an easy way to think because we've been through some stuff. I think particularly at this church, we, we talk about life groups all the time. What we say about life groups is we want to, to draw life from God, point others to him. The way we do that is we want to never walk alone, and so that's why we have these life groups. You know, right now, many, uh, much of our life group is sort of single generational. Right? So this sort of generation, not exclusively, right? but this sort of generation sticks together, and this sort of generation sticks together, this sort of generation sticks together. Here's the thing. You of another generation than me have so much to offer that I can learn from. You have so much wisdom and experience, and you, you might have been following Jesus for 30 years. I'm 30. I need your wisdom, <laughs> right? Other people need your wisdom, need your experience, need your pain, need your hurts, but need the glory of Christ sustaining you throughout the entirety of your walk with Jesus. We need that. 
We need that. My dream for our life groups is that they would be so beautifully multi-generational, multicultural, multi-ethnic, all of these multi-things, but singularly focused on Jesus so that we can have a rich, beautiful experience of doing life together in the context of life groups. And so a stewardship mindset versus an ownership mindset says that it's not about what's comfortable, because I get that that's uncomfortable. It's a lot easier to sort of group up with people who are like you and a similar age to you. But ultimately, it's about what helps us all follow Jesus. We need each other. We really do. The last contingent of folks I want to talk about this in in this stewardship versus ownership concept. I I don't know if it's unique to Mary. I don't think it's unique to Mary. But in my time here, which is now a few years, what I've seen is there is a lot of folks who have experienced hurt from the church in particular. There are a lot of folks who have maybe come into the room and we're like, we're just hurting. We're just, we've been burned. And if that's you, I want to apologize to you on behalf of the church, okay? It's not the goal, it's not the hope. I pray that this church can be a safe space for you. I'm not gonna promise that you're not gonna get hurt because I can't control that. But I wanna commit to you to say, I wanna do everything possible to help you heal, help you recover, help you re-engage. But an ownership mindset says, you know what? I need the hospital, and the hospital's good, but I'm just going to stay right here in the hospital. I'm just going to stay right here in the hospital. I'm, I'm a little bit nervous to step out here. I'm a little bit nervous to step out here because when I step out, I become vulnerable to more hurt. And some of us need to stay a little bit longer in the hospital. We need to sit on the sidelines a little bit longer and say, you know what, I'm just watching the game and it's really good and it's really healthy for where you are right now. Some of us, 100% true, stay in the hospital. Others of us, we've been in the hospital for a little while and I think it's time we start stepping out and saying, you know what, I want to steward the pain that God gave me. I want to steward the experience that God gave me. I want to steward well the grace that I've experienced from God in sustaining me through this hurt because what that does... Church, when we can go through pain and hurt from other people and still know the grace, the mercy of Jesus, that brings wonderful glory to Christ. Because it says Jesus is bigger than our sin and the sins that have been done against us in particular. And man, what a message the American church needs on that. And so wherever you are this morning, right, From a long-term church health, we need healthy balance of serving on a Sunday morning, and we need a healthy balance of sitting on a Sunday morning. For example, it's just one expression. Again, everything is important here. But here, what happens a lot of time is, oftentimes in these conversations I've had with folks who've been burned and they've been hurt, is it's actually a symptom of burnout. So what happens is folks who, who, who... who jump all in, they're like, yes, I'm in, I'm, I'm the church leaders see that, and they're like, great, you know where we need you? In kids. And so then you get stuck in kids, and you're serving there for like 52 straight weeks, and you get out of there, and you're like, what just happened? I haven't seen the light of day in a year, you know? And, 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 you, and then you go, I, I need some break, and it's like, well, no, you served there, that's where you are. And so all that to say, right now, we have an imbalance in, on a Sunday morning, We have a lot of folks who I'm concerned are going to come to me in six months and say, hey, I'm hurt. I'm going to say, why? Because I've been serving every week for forever. It's like, oh, shoot, you're right. (laughs) Here's the thing. We need more people in order to have more health. So my point 
Again, that's, that just speaks to Sunday morning because it's a, it's a practical thing. And the last thing I want is in six months to a bunch of people be coming to me and saying, I'm hurt, you hurt me. It's the last thing I want to do. You hear that? So again, maybe for you, you need to stay in the hospital a little bit longer. Praise God. Let's meet. Let's talk through that. Some of us need to step out of the hospital and say, here I am, God. Use me. Use my experience. What do you want to do with my life? To close this morning, I just want to remind us of the wonderful, beautiful gospel. Like if we can just focus our hearts and, and all of this practical wisdom, practical advice, it's all really, I think, fine, good, healthy. But I just want us to be reminded of the gospel that all of us deserve death. What a bold statement that is. All of us deserve what our sin gets us, which is ultimately death. But God is rich in mercy. He is gracious. And instead of seeing us in our sin, he says, no, I'm going to bring you to life through my son. I have good works for you, putting a new heart in you. Through faith in Christ, your heart is no longer deceitful beyond cure. Through faith in Jesus, you're given a new heart, a new life. You're given new eyes to see the world. I just want to encourage us into that, that God, through faith in Christ, has newness of life for you, for this church, in this church, in this community, for his glory, for his purposes. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful for this series, and um, it's been so challenging in so many ways, but so helpful in so many ways. It's been hard. There have been hard truths that have come up from your word. God, I ask this morning that you would give us a, just a gospel centrality, says, you know, I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. Jesus, everything I have is because of you, your love for me, your grace toward me, your mercy. I thought that just soak into our hearts this morning. Would you help us as we contemplate the richness of the gospel, would you help us understand that this life isn't about us owning it? This life is about you, Jesus, and your glory, and you make us stewards of everything you've given us our time, our talents, our treasure. You use us. Help us understand, God, that everything we do, whether it's the job we think is pointless or the mundane chores or the cleaning up after your kids for the 17th time in the day, it all has a purpose. God, you're in the details. God, we can glorify you wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whether we're driving whether we're meeting, whether we're sleeping, we can do it all to the glory of God. God, help us do that well. We need your Holy Spirit to do that well. We cannot do it on our own. Father, we love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we come to you. Amen.